Thank you for the privilege of being here with you today. Thank you, Carlos, for this opportunity. And, you know, there's an extra, don't you think, a little extra special reward in heaven for showing up in church on a rainy day like this. <laughs> I hope you feel that. Carlos has allowed me to spend just a few minutes to update you on Sin Relief, which for our convention of churches is probably our newest ministry. We've just existed for three and a half years as a global relief ministry. And Sin Relief's mission is to serve churches like yours here at First Watkinsville as you're seeking to carry out Christ's Great Commission and do that through ministries of compassion. And we have five major focuses of Sin Relief. One is strengthening communities, which really is dealing with issues of hunger, uh, whether it's in urban areas in the U.S. or whether it's in third world areas around the world. Also providing clean water with water well drilling in third world areas where they have no clean water. Just whatever can strengthen communities in a multitude of ways. Secondly, is ministry to refugees. And our biggest project so far in our short history has been ministry to Ukrainian refugees as millions of Ukrainians have fled across the borders into Eastern Europe. We're working with the churches there as well as in the Ukraine when people have lost everything. It is incredible how open to the gospel they are. Thirdly is ministry to children and families which helps churches establish foster care and adoption ministries within your church to enhance caring for the least of these in your own community. Fourth is battling human trafficking. It's probably the worst evil really in many ways in our world today and rescuing what is mostly young girls from a, a place where they've been trapped. You can imagine all the emotional baggage and the trauma that is there, but it is a very important ministry as well. And then fifth is responding to disasters, whether it's a storm like occurred in Tennessee last night or whether it's a war in Israel whatever kind of crisis ministry we seek to respond to. And I, I was just in Israel about a month ago, first time I've ever flown into a war zone, but we are doing a lot of important work there. As so many Israeli families have been displaced, the government has moved the families in northern Israel out of that area because they're right south of Hezbollah and families in the southern part of Israel, which is right north of Gaza, to, to be out of those areas for their own safety. So hundreds of thousands of people Israelis are displaced now and we're seeking to minister to those folks and provide housing, provide food, provide whatever is needed. A lot of it is trauma counseling in a time like this. So these are just different ways that we seek to show the love of Christ in hopes of seeking to share the good news of Christ. I constantly remind our staff, you know, we have the privilege of helping hurting people, but if we're helping hurting people on their journey to hell, we are missing the greatest need in their life. And that is salvation in Jesus Christ. And the gospel is always our central focus in sin relief. So I thank you for your support. By you supporting our Southern Baptist missions like Lottie Moon or Annie Armstrong, you are supporting sin relief. It's really an unusual humanitarian type ministry in that all of our staff, all of us, all of our staff, all of our operating costs of the ministry are covered through your gifts to Southern Baptist Missions, to International Missions, and to North American Missions. So any church or individual that gives to Sin Relief, 100% of those gifts go directly to ministry. No overhead, no personnel, all to direct ministry, which is a unique 
role that we have and opportunity we have there. There are catalogs out in the narthex. Uh, one thing we do with our grandchildren, let them pick out a gift for a family or children in different parts of the world, whether it's giving a lamb or chickens or blankets or whatever it may be. And you may want to pick up one of those catalogs as you leave, or you can pull that up on the Sin Relief website, sinrelief.org. If you'd like to find out about how to volunteer, about going on one of our mission trips, or just being a part of what we're doing in Sin Relief, you can go to that website. But I know you're not here to hear about sin relief today. You're here to hear a word from the Lord, from the Word of God. So I ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. If you're new to Bible study, this is the fifth book of the New Covenant. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. It's the second book of Dr. Luke. Luke's gospel tells us of the body of Christ, number one, Jesus. Acts, the sequel to Luke, tells us about the body of Christ, number two, the church. And here we look at the inspiration of an ancient church in Antioch. So we're going to be reading in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, the last verse, and read into chapter 13 through verse 12. And as a way of honoring God, if you're physically able, would you stand now for the reading of God's word? And ask God to begin to speak to you through his word today. Acts 12, verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, which was the capital of Cyprus, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul or the governor there, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. And this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, or Bar-Jesus, or his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him. And he said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Father, as we stand before you, we pray now, God, that you, the Holy Spirit, 
will convict us, will teach us, and will point us to Jesus as we study your word and as we seek to know Jesus and seek to follow Jesus. Oh, Lord, may you speak. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A long time to stand through the whole sermon. In Christmas season, we think a lot about gifts, receiving and giving. But I got a question for you. What was the greatest Christmas gift you ever received? Now think about it a second. What's the greatest gift you ever received, perhaps in childhood? No doubt what mine was. When I was eight, Santa brought me a red bike. And I want you to know it opened a whole new world. I was able to go all over the place without having to wear a helmet. Can you imagine? It was incredible freedom in those days when we didn't have helicopter parents and overprotective about everything. We just got out there without helmets and survived and riding our bikes all over the place. And it was wonderful. That's the best gift at Christmas I ever got. How about you? Now, I ask you that question because we're going to see that the church at Antioch, being the inspiration for us today, was a giving church, a very generous church. Now, look at verse 25 of Acts 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission. What is their mission? Taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now, let me give you a little background on the church at Antioch. It was in ancient Syria that is now southern Turkey when the earthquake, the incredible earthquake occurred in February of this year. Some of us were there with sin relief after that earthquake beginning our ministry to the people there. And where we were was in a modern Turkish city called Antakya which is the ancient city of Antioch. When we arrived there, it was a city or a metropolitan area of about 400,000 people. We literally saw the city emptying out while we were there because about 90% of all the homes and businesses and establishments were either totally demolished or were condemned by the government. So the people had to find somewhere to go. And similarly began our ministry through the churches there in ministering to those hurting people. But Antioch, was located in what was then Syria, now southern Turkey. It was either the third or fourth largest city of the Roman Empire in those days. Rome the largest, Alexandria, Egypt the second largest, and either Antioch or Ephesus, according to historians, was the third largest city. So it was a big metropolitan area. But not only that, the church at Antioch was exploding with growth. And it was doing something that the church in Jerusalem was a little suspicious of. The church at Jerusalem, overwhelmingly Jewish. They began to hear all these Gentiles were coming to Christ at the church of Antioch. So concerned that they might be compromising the faith, they sent one of their leading members, a man by the name of Barnabas, to go see what was going on at Antioch. So he got there and he was thrilled. He was just overwhelmed and how God was reaching the Gentiles with the gospel of Christ. And if you'll just turn back for a minute in Acts chapter 11, you can read about Barnabas and how he as a great encourager went there, 
And when he saw that the church was growing so fast, he went to Tarsus to find this former religious terrorist who was on a mission to destroy the church, a man by the name of Saul, who had come to Christ miraculously when he was going to persecute and seek to kill Jews in the area of Damascus, Syria. But he had been a Christian for a while now, so Barnabas went to get him to help in leading and teaching and discipling those young believers, now overwhelmingly Gentile in the church at Antioch. And while this was going on, the mother church in Jerusalem was about to go through a time of famine. And it's even recorded in history when Claudius was the emperor of Rome, this terrible famine in that region of the world. So the church at Antioch took up a collection and they sent Barnabas and Saul on a mission to take that special offering, just like you at First Watkinsville here, in this time of Acts 1-8, take up a special missions offering. That's exactly what they did at the church of Antioch and it was a very generous offering. And it's interesting in verse 29, it says that what they did is they were to give a proportion of what they had to send relief, the actual name we have for our ministry, to send relief to the church at Jerusalem to minister to the brethren there. When that was done with Barnabas and Saul on that mission, they returned to Antioch. So what we see is the example of the church at Antioch is a giving and generous church. You at Watkinsville are a giving and generous church and you're now being challenged to stretch in your Acts 1-8 offering to be even more generous in carrying out Christ's great commission to take the gospel around the known world, whether it's helping with church plants here in North America or whether it's giving to a special offering in southern India, wherever it may be. Now go back to Acts chapter 13 and we see another aspect about the church at Antioch is it was a praying church. Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. Who were they? Barnabas, and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So this church was growing so fast that it became a multi-staff church. And it's interesting, the characters that were leading. First of all was Barnabas, the great encourager. Then you had two North Africans in Lucius and Simeon. Then you had Manaean who grew up in Herod's household. Don't you know he had some stories to tell in growing up in the household of Herod. And then you have this former religious terrorist who felt he was called by God to destroy these group of people that were following what he felt was a misguided fellow Jewish rabbi by the name of Jesus. But he had come to Christ. And Barnabas had brought him into leadership. So it was strong leadership. And look at what it says in verse 2. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, it appears they were having like what we would call a solemn assembly. Some of you may have participated in a solemn assembly. And often when they occur in our churches, the whole focus is for revival, to pray for revival in the life of the church. And that is a wonderful thing to pray for, but that's not what they were praying for at the church at Antioch. They were praying to determine the will of God of that church's role in carrying out Christ's great commission. That's the role to have. That's the focus to have when you have a solemn assembly. What is God leading our local church to be and do in carrying out Christ's commission? That's the example that Antioch sets. 
So they have this prayer time, and they're led in that prayer time to send out two of their five leaders, Barnabas and Saul. Now, that's amazing unselfishness. And Carlos, your pastor, will tell you. J.D. Greer, the former convention president, has written this book, Gaining by Losing, and talk about when a pastor begins to lead the church in sending people out, whether it's in global missions or whether it's planning churches, it's a big gulp sometimes. Because very often they're some of your best members, and it's hard to let them go. But here's the wonderful example of the church at Antioch sending out two out of five of their key leaders and disciples in that church. But that's not all. Look at verse 3. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now, first of all, the church at Antioch is a giving church. Secondly, they are a praying church. But now we see they are a sending and going church. Now listen very carefully. Listen, are you listening? The missionary calling is an individual calling of God, but it must always be affirmed by the body of Christ, the church. One of the mistakes young adults made from time to time that I would be talking with and pastoring Johnson Ferry there for about 38 years in North Atlanta was I'd have a young guy come to me Tell me about how he's called in missions. He wasn't necessarily a member of our church. I said, what church is going to be sponsored? No, I don't need the church. God has called me. And I would look at him and say, that's completely unbiblical. Never will you see an example in Scripture where an individual is called and the local church is not a part of that decision. And we see that here in the church at Antioch. They, they felt this leading to send Barnabas and Saul out. They felt that individual calling. So it was both the individual calling and the local church. But they were also sent out in teams. And Jesus, when he sent the disciples out, he sent them out two by two. Why? Because it's tough. You get discouraged. It's lonely. You need some encouragement. Let me, let me explain it this way. When I finished college, and by the way, I, I know most of you probably dogs. I, I didn't go to Georgia. I'm from it, Georgia, from Atlanta, but I went to South Carolina. A lot of family heritage there. I know some of you, by the way, are grieving over last Saturday. That you know, dose of humility is very tough. But imagine going to a college where you're the essence of mediocrity for 100 years in college football. <laughs> I mean, that, that'll humble you right there. You know, that's, not, that's not an easy calling to have to bear with. But after college, I was in business a few years. I was in sales with a chemical company. I worked in Augusta, Georgia. And I worked straight commission. Some of you guys, some of you women, maybe have had a job like that where you're only paid by what you have sold, what you produced. And every Monday morning, I get the Monday morning sweats, wondering where income was going to come from that week. But thank goodness, there was another sales rep in Augusta. And every Monday morning, we would meet for coffee. And we would just gulp cups of coffee to get ourselves fortified to go out and be turned down 90% of the time with the people that we called on all week long. But we had each other. And it was a great strength to have somebody else that was going to face that. Well, Jesus knows that when we're sent out, we need others. Lone rangers have a hard time making it in missions and ministry. And here we see the church at Antioch. They sent them out in a team. Barnabas and Saul needing one another because you're going to face opposition. You're going to get discouraged. You're going to get tired. You're going to get lonely. And that's key insight in carrying out Christ's great commission. 
But that's not all. I think when we see these three examples, a giving church, a praying church, and a sending and going church, to me it really describes the three key events that happened in the life of Johnson Ferry when I was pastoring there in Atlanta. First of all, in our very first year, in January of 1982, we were a, a plant, a startup. We were meeting in an unleased doctor's office, just had a few families there, and we got together some of the leaders of that early group, and we set up our first budget for the church for 1982, $88,000. I was scared to death. How in the world were we going to see people give $88,000 for that ministry budget? And that included all the operating costs, all the leasing costs of the doctor's office, the pastor's salary, just do a little figure. It was not a whole lot, I promise you. But we also wanted to give a minimum of a tithe to global missions, to give out from our individual ministry to our community to missions. So we set up that we would give 11% of that $88,000 to global missions. Now, the reason I share that with you is that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Now, if I'd have been doing the Sermon on the Mount, I would have said where your heart is, that's where you're going to give. That's where you're going to spend. But no, Jesus says it opposite. He says where you spend your money, there your heart goes. In other words, you give first in faith, and that only enhances your heart for God in doing that. A lot of you could have a good dose of a greater heart for God if you just have the faith to start tithing and start generously giving over the tithe as God blesses you because you're going to be amazed at how your heart for God begins to grow when you do that. So Jesus says where you spend, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So at Johnson Ferry, even though we didn't know it, we were just a startup church. That was a huge step in global missions. Then about seven years later, the International Mission Board came to us. They saw that we had begun to be a very generous giving church to missions, and they had targeted 10 churches in our convention to adopt an unreached people group. And they asked if we'd like to do it. We said, boy, that'd be great. Who is it? They said, well, the Kyrgyz people. Well, we were classically, geographically challenged Americans. We didn't know who they were. But the Kyrgyz were a part of Kyrgyzstan, one of those stand nations of Central Asia that were a part of the Soviet Union. They told us, they said, now, you won't be able to go to them because the Iron Curtain still exists. You couldn't go in any of those Soviet nations. There wasn't freedom to travel there. You just need to pray. Well, we had just started a prayer ministry a couple of years earlier, so we were excited. We, this will be a primary focus of the prayer ministry for Open Doors. And listen to this, y'all. Two years later, on Christmas Day, 1991, the Soviet Union fell. Well, the people of Johnson Ferry were taking credit for the fall of the Soviet Union. We've been praying for two years, and all of a sudden, God opened the door. We were thrilled. So we began to send in teams to teach people how to have a business, how to start a business, how to understand free enterprise. They were communists. They didn't understand all that. But they were all trained to share the gospel and did. We began to send in medical teams to meet real human needs there, and they were all trained to share the gospel. And today, there is a thriving Christian community in Kyrgyzstan now is still overwhelmingly Muslim, still overwhelmingly atheistic in a lot of ways. But there is a body of Christ there today as God answered that prayer. But the third major event that happened in the life of John Sperry happened about three years after that. In 1992, our student pastor came to me and said, I, look, I, I want to challenge, Brian, I want to challenge the student ministry 
to give up their spring break rather than going to Destin, Panama City, all kind of shenanigans goes on there. But to give up that time, go through eight weeks of discipleship training in preparation of going to minister to the poorest of the poor in Matamoros, Mexico, south of the border, building housing and sharing the gospel door to door. I said, go for it. Well, on that very first trip, we only had about 30 folks, adults and students, small group. But what happened in their life was life transforming. And it had a whole impact on our whole church. And then year after year, more and more people were going on short-term mission trips around the globe to where in the last five years leading up to COVID, we were averaging half our Sunday morning worship attendance going on mission trips, about 70 to 80 trips around the globe. Well, I'll tell you, that does something for your local church to have that kind of mindset of the world on your heart. And those three events, a giving decision when we were just getting started, a praying decision for opportunities to reach the unreached, and a sending and going decision, really are three key events God did in the life of Johnson Ferry. And that can happen in any church. You know, I don't believe there are many churches with a church budget that is less than $88,000. I don't know of any church that can't be a praying church and praying for the opportunity for God to open doors for the gospel to be shared. And I think most any church can send a handful of people on its first mission trip. Think about what you're already doing here at First Watkinsville. And think about how God wants you to move to the next level when it comes to being a giving and praying and going church just like the church at Antioch. So they send Saul and Barnabas out. They go to Seleucia. You can read about this in verses 4 through 6a. Seleucia is on the east coast of the island of Cyprus. They go across the island of Cyprus. They proclaim the gospel in synagogues of the Jews. Wherever Paul went, even though he was first of all, he was most of all to reach the Gentiles, he would always start in the synagogues of the Jews because Christ teaches that. We always begin with our Jewish friends. And as they went across the island, they came to the capital city of Paphos. So this is where they were sent. And understand this about being sent out. When you're sent out on a mission trip, it is a faith journey into the unknown. One of my favorite books is Undaunted Courage by Stephen Ambrose, talking about Lewis and Clark's incredible courage as President Jefferson gave them the mission to go out and find the best route to the Pacific Ocean. Now, the courage of those men, I mean, you read that book, I mean, you're just ready to go. It's incredible courage they had. And when you go on a mission trip, you're venturing on faith into the unknown. You have to be willing to get out of your comfort zone and taking the gospel in areas where you really don't know exactly what you're going to face. So that was the case. And then as they got to the capital city, the governor or the proconsul there, a man named Sergius Paulus, was an intelligent man, and he was interested to hear what they had to say. Because think about it, he was a good leader. He had been hearing about these two guys going across the island. He's in charge of governing. But he also seems to express some interest. It's like he was a seeker wanting to know what the word of God was that was coming through these men. But he also had a key advisor, Bar-Jesus, or also named Elymas. He was in the art of black magic, not a magician that's a sleight of hand, but just an occult type movement. And he didn't want the governor to hear their message. 
So another thing to remember that we learned from the church at Antioch is when you begin to get on the front lines of sharing the gospel, expect spiritual warfare. Don't be surprised by it. Expect it. Why? Because here are all these people in captivity of lostness in their sin, in the captivity of the evil one, even though they don't know it, and when you come in to liberate them and set them free with the gospel, the devil goes into overdrive to hinder what you're doing. And that's what we see happening here. And so how does Saul respond? Look at verse 9. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Now Saul confronts this man. He knows that he is filled with the devil. And he confronts him. He calls him out. Now that had to be pretty exciting. If your wonderful pastor Carlos called out a man filled with a demon in worship here at Watkinsville one day, it would add to the excitement of worship, I promise you. It would grasp your attention. So you can imagine how that caught everybody's attention. Now, I've only been a part of one exorcism in my life. It was on a mission trip in South India. And these Indian pastors have worked real hard to prepare for our coming. And they got all these Hindu people from these rural villages to come. They built a a big tent. They were all sitting on the ground under that tent. And they built it, come here, an American speaker. Well, these people had never heard an American speaker, speaker in person, so it was a big event for them. And they were all worshiping under this tent. It was a wonderful experience you could feel. And all of a sudden, in the middle of that singing and worship, this woman let out a blood-curdling scream. I'll never forget how the hairs on my arms just stood up. I mean, it was not a normal kind of scream. It was a blood-curdling scream. She began to go in all these spastic contortions. And one thing about the Indians in that lost culture, unlike a lot of Americans, they have no trouble believing in evil spirits. And when this happened, they began to scatter away from this one. You could just, just see this area clearing out under the tent. But thankfully, the Indian pastors that had helped gather those people there, they went up and laid hands on this woman. And the man who was my interpreter, he began to pray for this woman. And man, was he praying intensely in the name of Jesus. And I want you to know, I'd never seen an exorcism before, so I kept my eyes open while he was praying. I'll have to confess that. I wanted to see what was going to happen. And in the middle of his prayer, all of a sudden, that woman went limp. And her whole body had been in spastic kind of contortion. She just went limp. And I will never forget the look in her eyes. It had been the wildest look in her eyes before that, and the peace in her eyes. I imagine your pastor Carlos could share this, and any of you who've led somebody to Christ, especially if they've lived a life maybe really far from the Lord, and when you pray with them to receive Christ, and you look up from that prayer, and there's just something different about their eyes. The countenance is different. And that happened with that woman. So they gathered all the people back in the tent. I preached a sermon that day through the interpreter. There were about 700 people in that tent. And then the guy who did the interpretation gave the invitation to them to trust Christ. At the end, over 100 of those Hindu Indians stood to say they were going to profess Christ, which takes incredible courage in that culture to do. And I'm not a gifted evangelist. I'm more of a teaching 
Bible teaching pastor always want to have an evangelistic opportunity and invitation in preaching but I'm not a gifted evangelist that was that was unbelievable that day matter of fact we were going back to our van to go where we were staying and I told a few guys from John Spear I said you know if we could have an occasional exorcism at John Spear we'd see a lot of people come to Christ it never happened but I think it really would have enhanced our evangelistic outreach if it occurred but what we saw that day was a visible example of spiritual warfare that is usually invisible and Saul who is now called Paul Saul is his Jewish name but now for the first time in scripture he starts to be called Paul by his Roman name because his primary ministry is going to be to the Gentiles and this had an incredible impact on the governor verse 12 then the proconsul the governor believed when he saw what had happened being amazed at the teaching of the Lord now remember this the church at Antioch in sending out this team of Barnabas and Saul reminds us that the gospel is for all do you realize now listen are you listening are you listening listen this is the first convert to Christianity from the very first mission trip in the history of the church now listen do you realize that a big reason that you are sitting in church today is because the church at Antioch took seriously Christ's great commission and began to send out the first mission trip in the history of the church and as the gospel began to spread around the world it eventually came to the United States and a big reason you're sitting in church today is because of the church at Antioch that sought to fulfill the will of God in fulfilling Christ's great commission. So we're greatly indebted to the wonderful example of the church at Antioch. And as this man, the first Gentile and the first believer to come to Christ on the first mission trip, isn't it interesting that in God's sovereignty, it's the most influential man on the island of Cyprus. God's plan is pretty good. But what we see here is an incredible example of a church that sought to be in the center of God's will in carrying out Christ's great commission. So question, question. What is God desiring to do in First Watkinsville when it comes to giving, when it comes to praying, and when it comes to being a sending and going church? But that's not really the most important question. The most important question is this, what is God saying to you individually today about giving more generously to the Lord's work, about being a man or woman of prayer, about being willing to be sent by your church with a willingness to go wherever God is leading you to go? That is the question of the day. One of the things I love about serving with Sin Relief is just the incredible amount of stories I hear of how when we seek to show the love of Jesus to hurting people, it's amazing how open their hearts are to receiving the good news of Jesus in the gospel. Back in the early days of COVID, 
one of our IMB missionaries sent for a grant from Simulief, just a small grant of a few thousand dollars to purchase food locally. This also happened to be in southern India in one of the villages where they had been ministering because the people didn't have a safety net in that region. A lot of governments around the world don't provide a safety net in crisis like the U.S. government would do. So these people out of work, dependent on a daily or weekly paycheck in their work, they were afraid they were going to starve to death. And so because our missionaries had been training or discipling the local national Christians that they had led to Christ, they sent for this grant to send relief. They purchased food locally. They made these large food bags that would be enough to feed a family of four for two to four weeks, depending on how they used that food. And they then went to the national Christians that had been led to Christ by missionaries that you have sponsored. And they showed the love of Christ by just going door to door in these small villages of that South Indian community and giving them food. One of the doors they came to, the husband and wife when they arrived with food, began to weep. And they invited them in. And the man confessed that he and his wife had just been preparing the final meal for their family and all their children to poison them all, including themselves, because they didn't want them to die a slow death over weeks or months of starvation. Because they had no hope. And there was nobody in their religion that was helping them out but these Christians showed up with the love of Christ and food and they wound up leading this husband and wife to Christ. Now think about that. You had a family that was physically saved from death, but most of all spiritually saved by the gospel of Christ. That's what missions is all about. So what is this church's role in moving to the next level of carrying out Christ's great commission and what is your role? What is God leading you to be and do in following Jesus? Let's pray. Father God, there are bound to be people here today that are very nominal in their faith or have no faith somehow or another through the preaching of the word you the Holy Spirit are convicting their heart of the need to not only follow Jesus to be a, but be a part of something far bigger than self the work of the church globally may they respond to you in faith today and Father there are bound to be many believers here in this service and you the Holy Spirit have been speaking to them about giving more generously about praying more regularly about being willing to be sent and to go wherever you're leading them to go. Lord, may every person here be willing to follow your will, whatever it may be. And may you use First Watkinsville, and may you use each individual follower of Christ to have a greater impact in carrying out your great commission to where people from every people group on the face of the earth have an opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus. But we pray this prayer in Christ's name.
Bryant's finishing this morning, uh, thinking back through those things he shared about the church at Antioch, how they were a sending church and a praying church and a giving church. And thinking about where we are, where I am, ask, asking those questions that he put before us to myself. And the thing that just keeps coming back is the way that this morning continues is, is for me, is for all of us to be an obeying church. And the Spirit of God speaking to our heart today, putting his finger on some things that he wants us to do, uh, some things that he wants us to do in following him. Uh, we, we walk away not just checking the box on the day. We walk away saying, Lord, help me to obey now what you're saying for me to do, what you're saying for us to do. And if uh, we added just uh, one more point to that outline, It'd be beautiful today if we each could say Watkinsville uh, is an obeying church. Let's do what God says. Let's stand together. Father, help us to be that. Give us a growing faith. Uh, Lord, help us today to trust you to be obedient to what you're saying for us to do. Make us like this church at Antioch. In Jesus' name, amen.